Hello and welcome to Euroactive's Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Natasha Foote. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euroactive's Agri-Food News team. So today we're going to be talking about a very important debate, which is the one on uh, carbon neutrality and in particular of um, carbon sequestration. So, um, you know, crops are natural carbon sinks for and carbon soils. dioxide. Yeah. Crops and soils, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, there's this data of uh, talking about crops and soil remove the equivalent of around uh, 51 billion tons of uh, uh, CO2 from the atmosphere each year in Europe. And it's an uh, impressive figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, they store them in, in the topsoil. And and it's also a regenerative practice, you know, this carbon sequestration. And we heard a lot on uh, regenerative practices recently. <laughs> from who? <laughs> So um, at the same time, European farmers have so far been prevented from participating in the so-called carbon markets like the ETS system uh, at the EU level, uh, which are basically some markets that would allow farmers to get paid for storing carbon in their farmlands Hmm. uh, by basically trading these greenhouse gases uh, in the very simple terms. Uh, so there's this um, carbon market taboo at the EU level, and uh, we have today uh, Riccardo Valentini, who's a professor at, of uh, forest ecology at the University of Tuscia in Italy, uh, who's a real expert on uh, the role of land use changes and forestry in the carbon cycle. And he also coordinated several new projects aiming to understand and quantify the terrestrial carbon budget and greenhouse gases emission. He was also a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, um, when the IPCC received the Nobel Prize for Peace in 2007. So thank you very much um, for being with us on the podcast today. Um, let's start with hearing your take on this, uh, this new ambition from the Commission when it comes to carbon neutrality. I noticed that uh, since I've been in this uh, kind of discussion business <laughs> since many, many years, I started to participate in negotiation even before Kyoto Protocol, you know, and so I followed up a little bit the history. And uh, the fact that today we are uh, sort of free to talk about carbon neutral, for me, it's really shocking because when I started to about climate policy and things like that, um, carbon neutrality was uh, impossible to even pronounce, you know, because, uh, okay, we can reduce, okay, but not carbon neutrality, zero, zero emission you know, in terms of carbon neutrality. Carbon neutrality um, includes, so uh, people doesn't know, I mean, don't know exactly, but carbon neutrality absolutely includes the, not only the emission reductions, but also carbon sequestration. We cannot achieve carbon neutrality of course, only by reducing emissions. You know, it's impossible to do that. So we need to uptake carbon. And this is where the question becomes more tricky because uh, how are we going to store this carbon? And, uh, you know, all the technology that, is, for example, the physical carbon storage is really difficult because of uh, of finding geological uh, conditions appropriate. And carbon dioxide is... a I define the most democratic gas that we have <laughs> in our Mendel <laughs> table. <laughs> carbon dioxide is a carbon channel. I mean, it's, it's really uh, democratic. We emit carbon any, in any in any of our moment of our life. And how uh, 
can we stock this, uh, as you said, democratic gas? That is an interesting question because, uh, okay, we can store carbon in the biomass, protecting, for example, forest and or replanting for new forest. But uh, I'm working with a colleague in Germany on a new paper. Basically, our idea is that uh, the carbon that is uh, biologically uh, produced uh, is very fragile, it's very vulnerable. So um, we should uh, find ways, uh, if we want to use a biomass for creating carbon, to freeze the carbon, no? and to protect the carbon before any other um, elements that could be climate effects, uh, plant disease, fires, uh, could destroy the same carbon. Because it's too easy to say, okay, we plant forests, and break. but if in 20 years from now you have a fire or an insect attack, this carbon will be lost in the atmosphere again. And we have to be honest in this. We cannot just say this is absolutely perfect. It's not perfect. The ecology is like this. So we are a little bit provocative with this paper. Now it's not yet uh, published, but soon, possibly. <laughs> it's a little bit provocative because uh, it says that it's not enough to plant trees. It's not enough to protect forests. We probably need to, for example, um, use the carbon and uh, put it uh, stored in a, in a, for example, material substitution is an important uh, question. If you take carbon from the forest and you produce materials that substitute fossil materials like concrete, steel, and so on, you can use wood, for example, for many applications, or organic carbon for producing uh, as an alternative way to produce graphene, for example, that is an important element for our batteries, for our uh, you know, future technologies, nanotechnologies. That's the way where we can really store the carbon for permanent uh, for centuries. And maybe you could outline for us, you know, what are the main problems of this kind of holistic approach and, and how is it related to giving farmers this option of, of entering into a carbon market? The problem is the timing, okay? The timing and the probability that during this time your carbon will be destroyed. It's not an easy question. And coming back to the market, the market reflects a little bit this uncertainty, okay? Because yes, indeed, it would be an important incentive for the farmers to have a carbon market, but the commission doesn't want to hear about this. I know that uh, completely, but this will be absolutely boost, not only for the climate, but in general for the agricultural ecology, for the improving the quality of them. But because all these measures are at the end adaptation measures or are measures that improve you know, the soil fertility and things like that. So there are many benefits, co-benefits. But okay, in this moment, the commission is very skeptical about the use of the, the market mechanism for the agriculture and forest carbon. Um, but in some way, I can understand there are some of this question of permanent, the permanence of the carbon stocks are important. Uh, unless we can make another, okay, we need 100 years to let the, the hydrogen maybe to become uh, the dominant way of energy. Uh, okay, so after 100 years, we you know we don't care much about the, the, the fate of the carbon uh, emitted. So maybe okay, let's uh, so let's construct carbon farming systems that last for 100 years. So let's put a, a temporal limit, but we cannot say that it's forever. We cannot say that we solve the problem. The carbon neutrality will be solved forever. No, no, that's not true. We have to be honest. So in other news, uh, we had uh, 
development on uh, an issue that uh, we covered in the recent months, mm. uh, which is basically um, this uh, committee, this European Parliament Inquiry Committee on Live Transport of Animals. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you tell us a bit more, uh, Tash, on this? Well, it's a big, it's, it's a pretty hot topic, hasn't it? But for the last few months, I mean, this discussion about, you know, animal welfare and linking it with live exports of animals and the, this discussion of whether the EU should look to, to ban the export of live animals, like the UK has done, actually. The UK is actually in the process of, of preparing this ban of live export of animals. And I remember I covered an anecdote committee meeting quite recently, I think back in March. Um, and there was a lot of conversation about this. Although the EU Agricultural Commissioner, Janusz Wojciechowski, he really voiced his support for a significant reduction um, in the transport of live animals, but he, he fell short of calling for an outright ban. Um, but this whole conversation about the live export of animals has been happening on this backdrop of this incredibly sad situation, this emergency situation we've seen over the past few months. I mean, when was it? Back in March, Gerardo? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, we're talking about this uh, controversial events mm. involving these uh, two livestock ships yeah. that departed from um, Spanish ports. That were stuck in limbo, basically, in, in, in the Mediterranean. For two months, for three months, because, I mean, it was uh, unfortunately uh, settled the issue in the end with the slaughter of. Uh, um, the animals in March. So uh, one of the two ships, the one uh, Togo flagged ship, uh, uh, Elbeik, um, uh, basically ended its journey uh, after three months of wandering uh, in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what happened? Basically, these two livestock ships were bound for t- Turkey and Libya, but the local authorities rejected uh, cut because uh, there was some suspicion uh, of uh, the blue tongue virus. Mm. And uh, and actually, an outbreak amongst the bovines was not confirmed, but still the two ships had been stranded on the sea um, as they were basically not allowed to dock at any ports in the Mediterranean. And as I said, um, the journey uh, ended in Spain mm. where the government order the slaughter of the uh, unwanted animals. So uh, the new developments involve, of course, uh, Spain, because we've seen some documents. And basically the ANIT committee, the Life Transport of Animal uh, Inquiry Committee, invited the Spanish Agricultural Minister, uh, Luis Planas, to an exchange of views on, uh, on what happened with these two livestock ships. But uh, the Spanish government replied uh, in this mail that we've seen, uh, saying that uh, basically Planas was uh, too busy and uh, it wouldn't be impossible for him to participate in the meeting. It's also true that I personally see the invitation and this invitation was open to they were busy a too, substitute representative from the Spanish Agriculture Ministry too. Yeah, so, um, yeah, this reply was a bit uh, weird, let's say, because, uh, of course, Spaniards reiterated their willingness to collaborate with the committee, but they basically didn't give a representative to speak on behalf of the government. No words, no actions, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they offered the possibility to answer in advance uh, to some questions to be raised at the meeting. 
they also attached a very detailed report, say. Uh, they already sent this report to the health commissioner, Stella Kiriakides. Mm. I also had the possibility to, to see this uh, uh, report with detailed information and also the conclusion that the Spanish government uh, drew about the, the what happened to the livestock carriers. I, and, and in particular in this report, uh, the circumstances that led to the wandering of the ships uh, were uh, considered rare and very exceptional. Uh, and uh, the document also uh, reads that uh, the legislator will have to assess in the future whether some exceptions are necessary. But in the meantime, the only possible action to be taken in the event of a refusal and return to the EU territory is uh, the uh, killing of the animals. And um, this is actually one of the uh, problems that uh, the inquiry community uh, wants to address. I have to say that this document was actually attached, but it was in Spanish too. So it adds a bit of... Uh, Complication. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we have a clip. We contacted a Green MEP, who's uh, also a member of the ANIS committee, Thomas Feitz. And uh, let's hear from him uh, what are uh, his takes on this situation. Over 700 animals have been shipped around for a month in the Mediterranean Sea because the Spanish authorities did not intervene. Now Spanish authorities do not wish to appear before the Animal Transport Inquiry Committee to be questioned on the death of these animals. They also dare to send us a report that is only partially translated into English. This behavior is insolent and disrespectful towards the European Parliament. It clearly shows Spain has no interest in investigating the failure of their authorities. And it also shows other aspects. Member states have no interest in enforcing the animal transport regulation. Even if the Commission proposes a new animal transport regulation next year, it will be of no use if the Member States do not sanction it. So that's all from us this week. And this week, the AgriFood podcast was produced like every week by your Active's AgriFood news team, Gerardo Fortuna and Natasha Foote, with the support of our podcast producer, Evie Chiori. And you can also find this podcast on all major streaming platforms. That includes Amazon, Apple, Spotify and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest agriculture news from the EU. I'm Gerardo Fortuna. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Mm-hmm.